Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. So I'm very excited to share this episode with you on how we model climate. My guests and I put a lot of topics on the table in terms of what climate change is, how we model climate change, and what are some appropriate courses of action moving forward, with a bit of advice as well. I mean, we had a wonderful conversation, which time was unfortunately not on our side. We could have conversed for honestly many hours, but we condensed it down to what we felt was appropriate. But the most exciting thing we covered is the validity of climate change. You know, how the scientific community collects the data on climate and puts it together for accurate interpretation as well as predictions. So you and I can read it and make sense of it, really. So thankfully, my team and I found the right human to come on and talk all about this. So please meet Daniel Mutton. Daniel completed his Bachelor's of Science graduating with honors at Carleton University in Geomatics. After graduation, Daniel attended the Center of Geographic Science and received an advanced diploma in remote sensing, followed by a Master's of Science in Applied Geomatics at Acadia University. And his thesis revolved around developing a method to classify seafloor morphology based on geometric and geomorphometric features. And since 2021, Daniel has been a PhD student at McMaster University. His research focuses on developing integrated biogeochemical and hydrological models to simulate water, carbon, nitrogen, and energy fluxes in basins all across Canada. So, now that you've been introduced to the topic of this show and my dear friend Daniel, we are going to head into our first commercial break. But before we do so, I wanted to take a quick second and promote our newsletter. So the Monday before each episode, we will email you facts about the upcoming episode, as well as what information wasn't covered. So bonus content. And we will display what the following episode will be. So with that, we encourage you to respond or reply to the newsletter with a question that could possibly be answered by our guest star. So if you want to have your questions answered and stay in tune with the podcast, head to our website under the newsletter tab and sign up today. We look forward to adding you to our community of curious people. And with that, here is our first commercial, and please enjoy the show. Hey, Dan, how's it going? It's great to have you on the show. I'm super excited to talk about modeling our climate. What a great topic. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Sam. Yeah. So I'm curious, just before we get into any technical stuff, let's start out with just a personal question. What got you interested in studying climate the way you do? Why, why are you passionate about this? Yeah. So my early journey in academia was primarily one in the field of geomatics, which is closer to sort of civil engineering it's kind of like a hybrid between um, civil engineering or physical geography and um, computer science almost. Okay. And so it was a good synthesis of infield work and lab work. But after, you know, three degrees in the field and uh, working in it, I, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to be kind of more on the science side than on the technical side. And a lot of what I had learned while I was in geomatics is kind of applicable to the earth sciences and the environmental sciences. So I began looking into these related disciplines to try to find out, you know, where, where I wanted to go for the next step in my academic journey. 
And I found the lab that I'm currently working on at working in at McMaster University with um, Dr. Altafarain, and he's a tremendous scientist. And I spoke to him a number of times, and he was deeply passionate. And he had a he had a position available and a research project that was interesting. I've always been good working with um, computer simulations and uh, enjoyed coding as well as coming from uh, you know a relatively math heavy background probably not as heavy as yourself with uh engineering and physics but <laughs> compared to uh some some of my peers uh i am and so it, it felt like a bit of a natural fit to me and so yeah nice nice my understanding is from all of this is you're on the the modeling aspect where you take the data from the field and then you create models to explain what's going on what language do you use i'm just Curious. You use an R or you use in uh, Python? What what are you older, going with? Older than that. Older than that. Uh, I'm using Ooh. Fortran. I'm using Fortran. If you can believe it. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. I. So, <laughs> that's fine. so before this, uh, I had used Python most extensively, but I also mm -hmm. you know R, MATLAB, Java, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit of C plus plus, and okay. yeah, the thing with most of these is that these models were first being developed. A lot of them in the 70s 80s 90s yeah. and so fortran was the zeitgeist at the time and even <laughs> even now we get like uh the model that uh i work on most extensively was just rewritten in order to match kind of like modern coding standards or to be updated mm -hmm. to modern coding standards but they they still didn't move it to a new language they kept it in fortran and the reason because of that is just that a lot of the packages and a lot of the things that they use, they're all in Fortran. No one has bothered to do it. So if they wanted to update the current model, they'd also have to update all of these auxiliary packages. And it's it's too much work to justify. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. there's an old joke that professors don't want to uh, to modernize their technology. They want to downgrade their students, right? It's much It's much <laughs> easier that way, just to teach the students the old tech than to get new tech. Yeah, that would take a heck of a lot of work. I think also you know, just something that I've heard that even like our banking system in the United States is kind of the same way. It's it's such an old, I can't remember the exact coding language, but it's so old that they just don't want to revamp it because they don't know the consequences also of yeah. switching it to a new language. Yeah, and you have no, you have no idea what new bugs it'll introduce. You, yes. When you're doing something so big, it's very dangerous to do that. Yeah. For sure, I I'm definitely aware. Uh, I did you know student co-ops with the federal government of Canada, mm -hmm. and so and so on. And uh, I'm de they you know they definitely have lots of stuff in like Cobalt and Fortran over there as well. So, <laughs> coding so cool. I wish I I had more exposure to it. I've I've done C plus plus. I've done Python, MATLAB, uh, and it just with what I do now, I don't have to do much coding so hmm. it's it's a lost art for me but man is it <laughs> is it a great tool in the tool belt to have for sure oh for sure especially for young scientists too you might not need it in your undergrad but if you're going into any sort of um graduate school level mm -hmm. thing you're you're gonna have to learn it like 100 percent of the time absolutely so i guess maybe we should jump into some technical stuff for the people what we want to talk about today is obviously climate, but we, we should probably start at the bare bones. What is climate? How do you define it? Yeah, so really climate kind of needs to be defined in opposition to weather because those are kind of the two the two things you hear most about, right? So mm -hmm. to define weather first, weather is almost like the 
all of the different atmospheric conditions that go on in a specific place at a specific time. And yep. climate differs from that in that it's a long-term average mm -hmm. of the weather over a much larger area. So generally when we're talking about climate, we're talking about climate in the scale of a state or like a large region of state or even like, you know, the Midwestern climate or the West Coast climate or, you know, the the European climate, you know, things like right. this, right? It's much larger geographic areas. Right. Large geographic areas over a long period of time where weather is really just yeah. fine, like really small in a small period of time. Makes sense. Yeah. I think Makes I sense. think officially they look at climate as like a 30 year cycle. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I think that's generally how how it's it's looked at. But you know, obviously, uh, there's some that if that's you're definitely interested gray. In, yeah, gray and if, area. if you're interested in long term effects, you know, it's it's I don't believe it's been definitively proven yet because we just don't have the data for it. Mm -hmm. But it's strongly suspected that there is century level climate patterns that we are kind of only starting to now observe because we have sort of two centuries to go on or in some places three century of centuries of data to go on right depending oh. on where it is mm -hmm. that makes sense okay so it's a long period of time but then it's also slow right we're dealing with a thermal lag because this is the earth is a big system right yeah the, the earth's a big system and it's a very interconnected and complex system too so you get instances where the even for uh, you know years or a decade or so, something might happen in one area, but there is a counter effect somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So for an example, a very famous example of climate is the, um, the medieval warm period, right? Well, the medieval warm period was a local phenomena. It was a European phenomena. In Europe at that time, it was about half a degree warmer, but it wasn't a global phenomena. The global average didn't go up mm -hmm. at that time because there were other areas of the world that were cooling down in response to this. Oh, okay. And, and also it's kind of like an even mixture as well. I mean, the atmosphere does a really good job of evenly mixing the, the particulate matter. Am I right by saying that? It does a good job in certain areas, for sure. It, it mm -hmm. takes longer or... If, some, if a particulate enters the atmosphere over North America, there is no guarantee that it'll end up in Australia, for example, right? Because of how the winds blow and where precipitation events and other things will just naturally occur along its path. It's much more likely that it'll fall out of the atmosphere at some point rather than mm. circumnavigate the globe. Like think about it this way for the listener or watcher or whatever. Imagine you're in LA and it's, it's smoggy. You're not like you can drive to Colorado and have clean, crisp air, right? It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of localized. A good visual, two good visual examples of that, uh, within North America are one Las Vegas and two Mexico city, because they're both, they both kind of have the same geography, which is they are a valley surrounded by mountains. And mm -hmm. so a lot of the smog sits right where they are it doesn't disperse mm -hmm. widely yeah no that makes perfect sense so the next thing is what we kind of ironed out here was a, like climate is a positive feedback right so would you like to explain positive feedback yeah sure so a positive feedback loop is something that it 
can be pictured as a snowball rolling downhill in a cartoon sense, right? Where as it rolls, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And mm-hmm. your one initial push triggered that self-sustaining loop that not only does it it keep going, but it grows as it as it moves. And so in climate, climate change is a positive feedback loop for several reasons. One of the perhaps easier to understand ones is that as the global temperature increases, you get a smaller percent of global ice coverage, which lowers the reflectivity of the Earth's surface, which means mm-hmm. the Earth is absorbing more incoming radiation and not reflecting that radiation, which increases global warming, or it increases the global average temperature. Right, yeah, because the positive feedback loop is something that's like given out a lot like in, in media, and maybe not everybody knew that. So thanks for explaining that. So there's two different ways in which climate occurs. There's natural and there's anthropo or human caused. So maybe we could talk about the natural progression of climate change because there's so much focus today about the human influence, but maybe not as much on the natural influence. So maybe we can talk about that first, maybe starting with the Milankovitch cycle. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So the Milankovitch cycles, there's generally three that we discuss. We discuss the eccentricity of Earth, the uh, obliquity of Earth, and then the precession of Earth. Which one do we got first? Precession? Sure. We'll start yeah, precession. yeah, we're going to go with precession. Yeah. We'll start with precession. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as the Earth rotates, it wobbles uh, along its axis. Mm-hmm. And this wobble, it moves in a period of about 25,000 years. Yeah. And essentially, it makes the season, either summer or winter, for one of the hemisphere more extreme than the other. That's so currently, we have uh, perhelion occurring during winter in the northern hemisphere, and the summer in the southern hemisphere, meaning that uh, our winters are warmer and our summers are cooler. Right. Now, the next one is uh, tilt fluctuation. Would you want to go into that one a little bit? And by the way, for the people who are listening to this, we're actually showing just a quick slideshow that I put together right before the uh, recording, just so you can, like the people who are watching on YouTube can get a, a visual of what we're trying to explain here. So sorry, Dan, take it away, man. Yeah, of course. Uh, so obliquity, like your uh, image shows, is the angle of axial tilt towards or away from the sun. You have the extremes shown, uh, 22.1 and 24.5 degrees. Mm-hmm. And generally what it means is that the lar- the greater the angle, so the more the Earth tilts, the Northern Hemisphere tilts towards the sun, the mm-hmm. more extreme the solar radiation will be on the Northern Hemisphere. And then as it tilts away, it, we get less solar radiation so we get less extreme uh, events and so right right now we're tilted like 23 degrees away from the sun so and we're Mm -hmm. tilted we're i believe we're continuing to tilt away at this moment so yes that's correct because we're we were technically heading towards um a minimum or a lower Mm -hmm. yeah yeah per the temperature projections, we were supposed to be heading towards a a thermal, not a thermal minimum per se, not where we're like, you know, a total ice, ice over or an ice, Mm -hmm. ice age or whatever, but uh, a thermal minimum, so to speak, in terms of the last six to 12,000 years. 
Yeah. So yes, we are. But and and also to to point out here that tilt fluctuation and precession work pretty much in tandem. I would say in terms of what they're trying to accomplish with uh, thermal radiation exposure. And then the last one is orbital fluctuation. So that deals with the relative position with respect to the sun as we're going around it. And this is pretty much gravitational influences because if there wasn't, you know. Mars, Venus, Jupiter, etc., all these different bodies, you know, influencing Earth, we would run a typical pattern around the sun, but that's just not the case. So you get these fluctuations in our path around the sun. And obviously, just kind of like how the precession and tilt fluctuation occur, the closer you are to the sun, the more solar radiation you're going to get at higher intensities i should say yep. so that's that attributes to warming something i will mention for the viewers watching this the tilt isn't as pronounced as the figure makes it seem yes. it's yeah it's done for ease ease of um yes of understanding yeah exactly the actual difference between maximum and minimum eccentricity is about three percent distance yes. yeah exactly the next thing that we wanted to talk about, we talked about the Milankovitch cycle, which attributes to natural climate change. But now we want to talk about plate tectonics. And plate tectonics has an also really large, I guess, hand in, in the basket. So maybe you would like to talk about plate tectonics? Yeah, so plate tectonics has kind of two impacts on climate change. And they're not really in the small scale, right? Because plate tectonics moves, or in the short term, I guess, because plate tectonics move very, very, very slowly. But generally, the two things are the land masses on Earth, where they are physically, impacts different physical phenomena, right? It impacts ocean currents, it impacts wind patterns, all these things. And so where we are, where how the plates or how the continents are laid out now give rise to the different physical phenomena that we observe today. So for example, when we get into like a Pangea or like a supercontinent system, we <laughs> wouldn't have something like the Gulf Stream, which runs from the Caribbean up north to Greenland and then across over right. into into Europe. Like we wouldn't we wouldn't get that system. And that system is what warms eastern or western Europe. So that's mm -hmm. that's important for that. And the second thing is that Plate tectonics also has an impact on climate by uplift. And by uplift, I mean when two plates um, contact each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They fold up or one will fold over the other. Yes. And this does two things. The first thing it does is it the physical earth that moves up, it mm -hmm. cools, it, it will it will cool the surrounding area. The cold, it'll have cold air on top. Mm -hmm. And it'll be generally, or at least in the most extreme circumstances, it'll be above vegetation lines. So it'll be covered in snow or permanent ice, like Everest, like the Rocky Mountains, like the Alps, etc. Which, as you know, increases the Earth's albedo. And then also you get cool air generally falling off the sides of the mountain into the surrounding areas because that's how cold air generally travels. And then you also get instances of weathering as well, where the sides of these uplifted features get weathered and that increases the acidification of surrounding water bodies which right. can flow into the ocean i never thought about that that's that's a good one see i'm learning new stuff today i like that <laughs> and uh so and also a really cool history 
uh, point here is that about 500 million years ago, the earth cooled just enough to where we started to get actual plate tectonics, where it wasn't all just nasty volcanic activity. The earth was able to cool just enough to where we started to get plates to form. And then these plates started to shift around. So uh, there's been a lot of crazy things that have happened in the last 500 million years from the yeah. formation of Pangaea to the breakup of Pangaea to where we are today. I mean, it's heavily influenced some things, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And even like much more recently, there is a bunch of cool stuff that's kind of related to plate tectonics. So I know this is jumping the gun a little bit because I, I think you want to talk about ocean currents at a later part. But it's, it's interesting because an example of plate tectonics affecting these things is the Panama Islet right underneath the kind of, if you know where Panama is, right underneath the A on the Caribbean plate yep. there. Yeah, so before that formed, there was free flow between the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Right. And what that closing off resulted in two things, two big things at least. It was It happened about 60 million years ago, and it's one of the most important oceanic shifts in that time or since. And so what it did was it, A, prevented an, uh, a current that had traveled from Pacific to Atlantic and mm -hmm. a large flow. And with that cutoff, the Gulf Stream formed. So before, while that was still open, there was no Gulf Stream, which is interesting. The second thing that it did was that it changed the salinity of both oceans because the Atlantic Ocean is naturally more saline yes. and so the pacific ocean when it would come in diluted it and so the shutoff of that um that path that gateway that pathway caused the salinity of the atlantic ocean to increase which caused uh, you know the two big things that cause uh ocean currents and all sorts of you know oceanic uh, oceanographic physical phenomena are salinity and temperature differences and so that caused all sorts Ooh. of stuff to go on that's amazing. Ocean. So you're saying that's about 60 million years ago. So wasn't there the the last like maximum thermal uh, temperature on Earth was about 55 million years? I wonder if that had anything to do with it. I know there's a lot of hot debate in terms of what caused that thermal maximum at 55 million years ago, uh, where literally all the ice was pretty much melted, you know, mm -hmm. in, on Earth. I wonder if that had a great deal like a great hand in terms of creating that it's interesting yeah interesting. I, I don't know off the top of my head but it would definitely help reduce ice coverage in some of the northern hemisphere for sure definitely changing and in, in creating the gulf stream yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely so we did talk a little bit about albedo so uh maybe you want to you know keep going with that a little bit yeah sure so Albedo is a measurement of how much light a surface reflects. And there's a lot of things that affect the albedo, even for what you would assume are like contiguous um, land covers. So for example, yeah. for snow, snow and ice are, they actually have a pretty wide range of albedo values. Uh, generally, if you want if you want to represent albedo easily, you can do it from kind of zero to one, where it's a mm -hmm. fraction going up from 0% to 100%, right? Mm -hmm. So on that note, albedo or snow can kind of range anywhere from like 0.6 to 0.9 odd, right? Okay. And the reason is 
in its most visually apparent way is dirty snow, right? Yeah. Snow that has rocks and dirt and grass and stuff in it. It doesn't reflect as efficiently as, as uh, like pure snow. But in addition to that, you know, how packed is the snow? Is it how warm is the surrounding weather? Because snow that has a layer of water on top of it will reflect differently than snow that doesn't, that's much just all frozen. Mm-hmm. And even down to like, what is the geometry of the snowflakes? These all have impacts on this, on reflectivity. Yeah. And then you also get things where um, you get like urban covers, right? Where uh, ash, things like asphalt and uh, dark covered buildings and things like this, they absorb a lot of radiation. That's why you don't want to have like a black car in the summer, right? Things mm-hmm. turns into a hot box. <laughs> and uh yeah and um but that blows my mind whenever like i just moved out here to arizona it blows my mind how many people drive black cars i'm like you're crazy like yeah like not to hate on people but i'm like (laughs) wow no way when i came here i'm like give me a white or silver car yep that's all i'm taking (laughs) i i owned i owned a black car for uh for many many years and even in the canadian summers it it was extremely it got extremely hot. It burned your hand physically when you would touch it sometimes. But uh, you also get another big one is water. Water reflects basically nothing. <laughs> it's It absorbs across the infrared spectrum extremely efficiently. Ooh. It's why if you look at uh, any sort of like remotely sensed data, just wherever water is just a black spot because it's not getting anything back when it's just the image or uh, you're a structural engineer. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've worked with LIDAR before. A yeah, bit. a little bit. Yeah. So it's the same with LIDAR. If you shoot like a, if you have like a terrestrial LIDAR scanner and there is like a pond or something nearby, it'll absorb like, you know, 90 odd percent of the LIDAR pings. And so you'll have this beautiful point cloud and then just avoid wherever the water is. And so that's another one of these positive feedback loops is about albedo is that as ocean levels rise and a larger percent of the t- like total land coverage is occupied by water, that's more radiation that's being absorbed. That's lovely. <laughs> that's lovely. And what about like 70 odd percent is already. Um, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's lovely to know. Interesting. The more ice that we have on earth at one time just adds to like it's already cool but then it adds it's that positive feedback loop that positive feedback loop that adds to the albedo so that's that's cool information yeah and i i didn't know i didn't even think about the broad spectrum of of albedo in terms of ice and snow that's that's pretty cool about 0.6 to 0.9 i'll have to remember that nice um another thing that we might want to discuss before moving forward is if if you think it's necessary is uh how the greenhouse effect works yes absolutely yeah because we're just talking about albedo but we're not talking about greenhouse yeah yeah i kind of realized that we skipped a step here (laughs) (laughs) so basically the greenhouse effect is saying that certain gases trap heat within the atmosphere so why that is is because of like the physical properties of the gases. So as sun radiates across the electromagnetic spectrum, mm-hmm. but primarily shortwave radiation because it's yep. hot, whereas Earth primarily emits long wave radiation because it's relatively cool. Mm-hmm. So 
these greenhouse gases, they're essentially transparent at the shortwave radiation level. So shortwave radiation travels right through them, no problem. But they're basically opaque at long wave when it comes to long wave radiation. So when long wave radiation is then released into the atmosphere, it these gases absorb the radiation, they hold on to it, and then they emit it in all mm. angles, right? So yep. some of those will come back down to Earth and essentially be trapped within the lower atmosphere. Some of them release sideways, they're absorbed more, some of it's released down, some of it's released sideways, some of it's released upwards. And greenhouse gases, unfortunately, aren't just in the lowest layer of the atmosphere, right? They're in every every layer. And yep. so in order for the long wave radiation to escape Earth, it needs to travel through all of these <laughs> vertical layers in the atmosphere where it's being absorbed and then only a fraction is being emitted back upwards. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's how the greenhouse effect works, essentially. And it's another reason why albedo is so important, because when these surfaces reflect radiation, they're reflecting shortwave radiation. Yep. So it can escape. It doesn't have to be absorbed by something and then re-emitted as long wave radiation. Absolutely. That's, that's probably the best technical uh, explanation that you could go with there. And that's why we talk about like p parts per million PPM is, is like super important because mm -hmm. the more parts per million that you have of these greenhouse gases, the, the more, like the more the greenhouse gas effects and then the warmer the atmosphere gets. Yeah, so, for sure. There's probably a lot that we that we missed, and I think we could have even talked about uh, volcanic activity yep. as being a natural influence, and that's a positive feedback loop as well because it contributes to <laughs> the greenhouse gas effect. There's a lot of things that we really could have talked about, but geez, yeah. we need a few hours. But <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the Anthropocene or Anthropo climate change. What humans are doing to the climate. So maybe we can talk about emitting CO2 and yeah, we don't even have to just single out CO2 here. It's obviously like at the forefront of everyone's minds. We can also talk about methane. We could talk about other different, uh, there's, there's a bunch of greenhouse gases that go un yeah. unpronounced in lay terms. So we can talk about whatever, but I just wanted to bring up a standard PPM chart by, by NASA just to have a visual representation. Yeah, sure. So yeah, there's the three major greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor. Yes. Carbon dioxide is the least extreme of all of them in terms of like a one Oopsie. mole per mole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, however, it's overwhelmingly the most plentiful. Yeah. So that's why carbon dioxide gets talked about as the biggest one, right? Mm -hmm. So methane has its its day in the sun, and that's primarily in agriculture where cows burp and, you know, animals burp and produce methane. And Also rice. Rice production gives about, like, yeah. what, a third, I want to say anthropo-influenced, not, not natural, but anth anthropo, yeah. And then <laughs> also... Oh crap! I don't want to spoil it, but permafrost <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Continue. And, my apologies. And so, um, but CO two is really the big one because CO two comes from uh, fossil fuels, which are oil and gas, coal, natural gases, mm -hmm. some natural gases, things, things like this. And they're the big one because that's the burning of these fuels really kicked off during the industrial revolution and they just climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed. 
-hmm. And it leads to some some kind of funny events. Um, you might be familiar with this one because it's kind of like a physics uh, physics in joke. But uh, the physicist Lord Calvin uh, back in the 1800s predicted that we'd run out of oxygen because we were burning. The Industrial Revolution was causing so many fires that uh, it would burn up all the oxygen in the next 400 years. I remember and, that in chemistry class. Yeah. And so what, what he forgot about was that uh, ocean respiration, essentially. He forgot yeah. to factor in ocean respiration, not realizing that that um, plays a massive part in this. Oh, definitely. Uh, but but as we, we previously discussed with how the greenhouse effect works, as we increase the concentration of CO2 and water vapor and methane and the other greenhouse gases, which are kind of smaller uh, in scale than the, the big three, um, we trap more energy within the system, if you want to call it that, of Earth, mm -hmm. which increases the energy and therefore heat of the system and causes all sorts of ramifications, which is also why we refer to this as climate change now instead of just global warming, because yeah. global warming is accurate. The Earth is warming. The mean, the temperature at sea level of the Earth is warming. Uh, however, it's causing all sorts of other things, right? Yes. It's not just a warming that we care about. It's all the different changes that come from it, which is why climate change took over as the default terminology. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, so global warming is just a one part of many, many different things that's going on. Yeah, totally agree. I don't really even say global warming anymore. It's usually just climate change. Yeah. There's not a, and then there's a lot of like, feedback from people that don't really like the term global warming which i mean that's fine i don't whatever but uh that's what's going on but at the time i think a, i think a lot of people still associate it with that al gore documentary and there's a lot of people <laughs> who don't like al gore for whatever reason and so that's why it kind of gets a lot of pushback yeah i mean he was a guy trying to push an agenda at a time in which it was still this stuff was still really politicized uh by you know the fossil fuel industry of of getting scientists like us to be like it it's actually not just us you know it's it we're not the real fact you know like stuff like that so mm -hmm. yeah i see that i definitely yeah. can see that and we'll we'll talk about it a bit later when we discuss kind of the history of climate science but uh you know the climate change as we understand it isn't a new phenomenon we've known about this for a very very long time very long time so maybe like you just kind of gave a hint towards uh, this next subject, which is oceanic acidification, because literally as it goes up, uh, Lord Kelvin did not put into a factor that, you know, the ocean draws in a lot of stuff. So let's talk about oceanic acidification. Yeah, so ocean acidification, and it doesn't need to just even be ocean acidification because you'll get acidification in like freshwater bodies as well. Right. Uh, groundwater too as you get like acid rain not everything's filtered properly mm -hmm. uh, or doesn't get the chance before it goes into like the groundwater table yes but ocean acidification has a lot of impacts on a lot of different things certain species in the ocean specifically coral are very sensitive to temperature and acidity changes yes. and so yes. coral is a really important organism in the aquatic or oceanic environments i apologize i'm not an oceanographer i'm sure there's a very specific term for that but i don't know it off the top of my head and so it kind of causes another one of these horrible positive feedback loops where as 
the coral dies on mass you mm-hmm. get all sorts of deaths kind of like throughout the food chain right. uh, which is just you know it's bad for for the area it's bad for people whose livelihoods are in the fishing industry or in the tourism industry or anything like that and you also get it coming back to terrestrial environments as well because you get instances where there are microorganisms that their shells dissolve because of the increased acidity of the ocean Mm -hmm. which releases various chemicals that into the water and as these chemicals rise to the surface of the water you get the uh, atmospheric oceanic boundary layer uh, relation where that's kind of where the two exchange heat and gases and stuff with each other and so it causes chemical reactions that move all the way up into the atmosphere and cause and stifle formations of clouds and things like this and so you get all sorts of things that you kind of really didn't expect to happen from ocean acidification playing out and things that if you asked someone even like a specialist in the field before we had learned about this you know like they probably would never have listed this as an impact because it's so far removed from kind of what the big obvious impacts are right wow yeah right the first thing you think about is uh coral and and and, and mollusks not being able to you know literally survive but no wow that is okay second thing that i learned today <laughs> that's that's really cool no i didn't obviously there's a lot of things that slip under the radar because of just how we associate a tier list of things that are important to us and uh, the first thing that we usually think about is like coral reefs and and um, and and sea and marine life that have to you know use, let's just say water body acidification. And I mean, there's a huge abundance of humans that directly rely a big portion of their diets on on fish. So that's why we probably put it you know tier S, and and we think about what you said as as kind of a later stage. But that's the first time I've heard about that, and I've been trying to read on this for a few years. So that's cool. No, that's good to, it's good. I think it's just a little bit in human nature that we're immediately concerned with like the big things or like the cute things, right? So mm-hmm. big animals, cute animals, you know, <laughs> elephants, pandas, you know, these things draw our attention. And we kind of care less about, you know, some of the smaller things, the insects of the area, the small organisms, but these yep. are oftentimes like the foundational pillars of their, you know, local ecosystems or their food chains. And so when they die out or when they're forced to relocate, you know, that ripple moves all the way up into the things we really care about. But it might, you know, there's a lag in there. There's going to be a lag in there. It might be months, it might be years, it might be decades, mm-hmm. but we'll, by the time we notice it, it might be too late to do anything. Yeah. And if somebody doesn't realize this, I know we put a large emphasis on trees. It's just because, you know, we we see it all the time. We see it every day. But, like, trees don't contribute to sequestering, like, the order of magnitude between sequestration of oceans versus <laughs> yeah. versus trees is just unbelievable. You're, you're really just breathing uh, oxygen that was produced by the oceans. So, or ocean yep. life, excuse me. Well, we'll talk about it later too but it's the same for permafrost as well 
Oh, yes. So we might as well talk about permafrost since right, that's the next go. slide. Here. <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. Yeah. So uh, for anyone who's not familiar with permafrost, you get it in uh, high latitude areas. So poles and also high, sometimes high altitude, very, very high altitude areas. Hmm. But essentially, it's an area where the ground is permanently frozen with ice. And so depending on where you are, that amount will vary from say like 15 20 percent uh volumetric ice to up to 80 percent in some areas mm -hmm. and permafrost is really big for a couple reasons permafrost despite covering i think it's like five percent of the earth's surface it sequesters something like or the maybe the terrestrial surface on that matter but it sequesters like 30 percent of terrestrial carbon and it's yeah and so as permafrost melts the dead organic content which is mm -hmm. primarily what the carbon is it's frozen dead organic content it'll be exposed to microbes which will cause decomposition which will cause the release of so much the, methane yeah the, so much. the methane and co2 everything into the atmosphere and so it's I don't know the methane number, but I think it's it's over a trillion tons of CO2 is sequestered in permafrost. I just got chills. Yeah, and Ooh. so <laughs> the other issue, which is a, maybe a bit less important, but is important nonetheless, is the permafrost, as it melts, it A, forms thaw lakes which you can see in the image there which mm -hmm. as we confirmed are bad for albedo uh mm -hmm. it also causes large like morphological uh shifts in the area which makes it destroys anything that's built over there makes it yes. pretty much impossible to build anything new there mm -hmm. um which isn't always a problem necessarily a problem because they are per in pretty remote areas a lot of the time but yeah. there are communities up there who this does affect for sure mm -hmm. But it also exposes a lot of soil to natural erosion, yes. and it allows for rapid ecological change in the area. Mm -hmm. Sedimentation and, and all that, that good stuff. Well, not, not only that, but pretty much the only thing that can grow in permafrost is grasses, right? Maybe some small shrubs. Mm -hmm. But we're already noticing in a lot of tundra biomes where there's been large permafrost thaws that it's turning into shrubland almost entirely, Ooh. which causes a pretty large change to the climate of the area because shrubs they sequester carbon and nitrogen but they also they trap carbon in like local cycles and they store water where previously water wasn't stored there and Ooh. so it's it's affecting sort of like the regional climate of a lot of these places and it's doing things that hasn't been done in you know hundreds of thousands of years or longer yeah we're gonna be farming in uh in <laughs> greenland here pretty soon i guess you'll you'll need you'll need to wait a several generations for the nitrogen to kind of really right. stick, stick into the soil but yeah holy crap wow that's that's interesting so what we got for, for um i know there's a lot more obviously i mean it, in terms of like our transportation how we do our energy uh, how we ship things as a global economy is huge, something that we don't really think about. We just get excited about the thing that we got from China and Amazon. The global industry is is pretty interesting. Just global transportation in terms of flying from 
Canada to Australia or what have you is is other big, big impacts. Also, just understanding that I, I try to say this often is that there's like 100 companies worldwide that have contributed to 71% of global yeah. CO2 emissions in the I, last... I know the statistic you're citing. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know... I know it's exactly about 70 some about. percent. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I think people get really bummed out uh, because in the media, a lot of the times they push blame on the consumers. I hate that so much. I don't like when I jump on and watch a five minute YouTube video and at the end they're like, ride your bike and, uh, you know, make sure you recycle the stuff that was made by these, by, <laughs> by these big, uh, petrol product companies that say, oh yeah, just recycle it. And it's good. It's not really like Dan and I's fault that we're, you know, in this situation, but yeah, no, it's so, so there's, there's two, there's two aspects to it. There's natural and an anthropo climate change influences and i think it's also interesting to talk about where we are in terms of the climate cycles right because we're supposed to be on a downgrade or a a, a slope towards a thermal a small thermal minimum i don't want to call it a thermal minimum because that would say you know the snow globe earth like how we've seen in a long time ago but we are supposed to be on a, a thermal downgrade and what the Anthropocene, I'll just say and the, how the Anthropocene has done is that's actually kind of negated that rate of change, right? That, that thermal change over time. Am I, am I right by saying? Yeah. That? Yeah. So there's kind of three things, I guess, to, to break that down into the first is like the, next ice age thing right the idea that we're headed into into another ice age and that science came out in i believe the 60s and 70s and it mostly came out it it wasn't all wrong i want to say that just to to specify that the idea behind it was that we were observing that aerosols and the release of aerosols into the atmosphere actually resulted in a cooling effect right and so the scientists who were studying aerosols said, you know, look, we release a ton of aerosols. Aerosols have a cooling effect. If we, you know, extrapolate this and move it into the future, then we're going to get colder and colder and colder. And we're going to hit an ice, you know, we're going to hit an ice age sometime in the next thousand or so years, you know, thousand, mm -hmm. two thousand years. But those scientists missed two things, I guess. One thing that they missed was we stopped releasing those aerosols. I can't remember the exact makeup of it, but we actually stopped it. We, we fixed it. We stopped releasing it. Panic worked. CFCs? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I, th I think so. Okay, yeah. Chlorofluorocarbons and, for anybody that doesn't know what CFCs are. But. Yeah, and so so the panic worked and we stopped throwing them there. But the second thing mm -hmm. that they forgot about was that we we're also releasing greenhouse gases. Yeah. We're burning fossil fuels. And these scientists who are studying aerosols didn't study greenhouse gases. And so when the greenhouse gas people saw the aerosol people they started to kind of like compare notes and they said oh wait hang on the warming from greenhouse gases is way bigger than the cooling from aerosols so even if we were releasing aerosols mm -hmm. we'd still be heating up you know the earth yes yeah I see. and so that was a big one i see now that makes sense and i'm kind of curious because we're, we're debating uh climate change now in terms of what we're doing and this is good because I think in the future, whenever we start heading towards a rate of change that's positive, 
rather than negative uh, in terms of temperature change over time. We'll be able to kind of, I think, take the necessary steps to keep our civilization present rather than take steps towards elimination, right? Because we're going to see times in, in life where you have to deal with the, the natural portion of climate change where we're going to continue to increase naturally in, mm. in, in temperature. So that's quite interesting. I don't just think about today. I think about what's going to happen in 10,000 years, 20,000 years, whenever we have to deal with three to five degrees uh, Celsius increase globally. You know, that's, that's interesting to think about as well. Yeah. That's a very, very long time away. Of course. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so that's not something that I'm necessarily uh, concerned with at the moment, but no, one the thing that I hear. Can, yeah, yeah, we can deal with the, our current problems, I guess, rather mm -hmm. than look forward to those uh, those ones. But um, one of the big immediate concerns is that two degree yeah. threshold that you hear thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. And generally the reason why it's thrown around is that once you hit that two degree, the positive feedback loops will be so extreme that it'll run out of control by that point, right? Mm -hmm. And so going carbon neutral, and I'm going I'm using carbon neutral instead of carbon zero because yeah. there are methods to uh, extract carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, yeah. Iceland is carbon negative, for example, as a country. Yeah. yeah. So there are ways to pull carbon from the atmosphere. They're not very efficient. Uh, as of this moment, no. but you know, they're, they're working on it and it's one of the technologies that's going to improve over time as people put more money into it. And Absolutely. Into it. Yeah. And yeah. so that's kind of like the immediate thing to be concerned about going back briefly again, this is just something I, I just remembered that I thought you, I think you might get a kick out of to the global cooling thing. There are two scenarios that I don't know which one is more popular right now within the climate change community, mm -hmm. but basically they are, if humans weren't around, like we just didn't exist on earth, would the earth be slightly warmer than zero, right? So, you know, like pot, like positive 0 0.1, 0 0.2, something around mm -hmm. there, right? Mm -hmm. Or would it be slightly cooler and start cooling down, right? And so that's, that's so dependent. That's so dependent because that's based on natural phenomena. Like it is, there it has is based been on natural volcanics. phenomena. Yeah. I mean, you could get and volcanic activity. You can get, um, you know, meteor impacts. You can get so many different things that could yeah. totally throw that off, but I'm sorry. And, no, no worries. And so the question that you can come from that with that knowledge is what percentage of our earth's warming is due to humans? And the mm. answer is essentially anywhere from about 98% to 104%. <laughs> How do you get, oh my goodness. You get over 100 because if you follow the pattern that the earth should be cooling right now. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So that's, that's the level we're dealing with. It's not like, you know, we're causing a little bit of it. We're causing essentially all of it. Wow. 104 percent that's insane but it makes total sense if you look at the numbers uh yeah it's, it's very interesting uh, so the last thing i think i want to talk about is the is the history of of climate change when we started to know things and maybe kind of like a, a 
a little bit of a timeline understanding of where we're where we started to where we are now. So what do you got for me, Dan? When did we when did this all start? So it started about 200 years ago. So anyone who's familiar with physics and mathematics at I think a university level, I don't think you learned this in high school. It's been so long since I've been there, but uh, they might be familiar with uh, Fourier and things like Fourier series. There's no or... way they know Fourier. It's yeah, definitely okay. college. <laughs> okay, okay. It's it's hard to tell. You know, I haven't been in high school in the decades. So, yeah, that's dating, dating myself a little bit. But, uh, or, <laughs> yeah, so Fourier understood the greenhouse effect because he did the math and he knew that the earth is warmer than it should be given how far away it is from the sun. Mm -hmm. And for uh, reference for your viewers, if there was no greenhouse effect, the earth should be about negative 18 degrees Celsius on average, which is about negative zero Fahrenheit, maybe negative 0.5 Fahrenheit, so somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as of right now, what it actually is, is 14 degrees Celsius or 57 degrees Fahrenheit on yes. average. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so Fourier was the first one to kind of show that the greenhouse effect existed and this was a thing and it was widely accepted. So our impact on climate change was first shown in the 1890s by uh, the chemist and Nobel laureate, and I apologize if I'm getting this name wrong, uh, Zvante Arrhenius. Arrhenius? Oh, Arrhenius? Okay. I'm not familiar. He was a physical chemist and mm -hmm. i believe he was the one who gave the uh who created the definition of an acid and like what kind of widely oh. defined acid yeah nice yeah and so he showed that humanity burned co2 in his time at a large enough quantity to cause global warming so this is back in the 1890s Jeez. um yeah he didn't know how extreme it would be or what the effects necessarily were he just showed that enough CO2 was burning to increase the concentration at a, enough, a large enough scale to show uh, that the Earth is indeed warming due to anthropogenic reasons. And then you also get a couple people who are around this time in the 1800s. Um, so, for example, we talked about the Milankovitch cycles. Well, the Milankovitch cycles weren't really invented by Milankovitch. They were kind of really invented by a guy named James Kroll. And okay. he has a kind of interesting story. He was a regs to riches scientist, if you want to call him that. He was uh, born to a very poor family, didn't go to dropped out of uh, school after his second year, didn't go to school. He worked a bunch of different jobs to try to make a living. One of those jobs, I can't remember the name of the university, it was as a janitor at a university in Scotland, where he yeah. began reading the books in the library on his off time. And he taught, so he self-taught himself a lot of the, the material in physics and mathematics and geology. Nice. And so what he had done was he began communicating with scientists of his time and writing critiques of their, of their science and sending it to them and talking mm -hmm. to them. And so the Milankovitch cycles were initially his brainchild in order to explain glaciation. And so nice. we had only just found out recently, according to the geologic record that we had gone through an ice age. And so this was his explanation for how an ice age occurred. And not only that, but he posited that we had gone through several ice ages, which couldn't be proven at the time. <laughs> but 
was widely accepted because people believed in his science and he got an honorary doctorate and became a university professor through his research. And he didn't get all of it right. He got some of the math wrong. Uh, some of the cycles were off by a little bit, right? You kind of expect that. And Milankovitch, once he died, a lot of his theories were forgotten about, right? And so Milankovitch kind of, I believe it's independently. I don't think he deliberately copied his work, but mm -hmm. independently came up with the same idea with the uh -huh. more accurate mathematics. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. I see. That makes sense. And that happens a lot in science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A you lot. get a, a really famous example, right, is calculus being invented by <laughs> uh, Newton and Leibniz at the same time. I was going to say the same dang thing. And then just the more popular figure kind of won out, you know. Yeah, just... he, he won the propaganda battle, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And it's also kind of funny, like you were talking about how all this was, a lot of this was happening towards, you know, the late 1800s and the 1890s. That's so for the American listening to this, that's what, 80 years before the EPA was, was birthed? 1970 so <laughs> it, there was a big lag in terms of of caring it, it, people have have cared about climate yeah uh, i think it's just think, more and more today than it was then i think part of it is because for a long time in academics and this isn't just an issue with the earth sciences it's a kind of an issue that you see a lot of places there have been several times in history people have said we've solved physics right like what, what's it said? We've solved physics. All we can do now is get more accurate values or something They're along ignorant, those lines. They say that. I'm, 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 I swear it might even be Lord Kelvin again, but someone <laughs> said that, but, um, Strike two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. But, uh, there was a long period of time where people, as far as they were concerned, earth science was solved, you know, atmospheric science, oceanography, this was all solved. We'd figured out everything, all that needed to be all that was left was very like region specific issues, right? How did this specific mountain range form or how did this specific, you know, uh, fluvial system evolve, you know, th things like this, like we understood the general concepts and it took a long time, but you get very big things like our understanding of, uh, if you're familiar with like chaos theory, right? Well, that that comes from atmospheric science. It was first defined in atmospheric science to define movement of uh, particles through the atmosphere. And that was taken by, you know, mathematicians and physicists saying, hang on, this is really interesting. Like, we haven't seen this before, right? And, you know, nowadays, I don't think anyone's considering these things solved because we have, uh, you know, fluid mechanics. And fluid mechanics is very far from solved. And it's such an integral portion that I don't think anyone would dare to say that these fields are solved now. But I think for a long time, the earth sciences weren't kind of getting the recognition uh, on a global scale as maybe they deserved. And so it meant that we had learned a lot of things about it, but that information wasn't being properly disseminated to the people who should know it. Right, because it was just not getting very much attention. <laughs> a kind of famous example. I don't. This isn't meant to be a gotcha, but uh, if I was going to ask you how you thought water moved from falling on rain to getting to a river, what's your thought on that? How do you think it moved? Gravitationally, it's either that or it's electromagnetic. That's the first two things that I think about. Yeah. So overland flow was thought to be 
how the movement worked for up Not until exactly. like the 70s. So no, because it's, all, it's also above and below, right? Below ground. Yeah. yeah. Mo the overwhelming majority of it is below ground. So it's caused by a, a change in pressure, right? Mm -hmm. So as the water, basically, the thought was that water would fall onto land. The land would absorb as much water as it could, which, mm -hmm. you know, if it's soil, it can absorb a, some amount of water. But if it's mm -hmm. pavement, it's basically absorbing nothing and just running down, right? Uh, and then it runs over land into mm -hmm. the oh, into whatever water body it is, right? Yeah. But uh, that amount, that little bit, you know, maybe a little bit that soil could absorb turned out to be a really big amount. And it's really hard to saturate soil. And so overland flow is pretty minimal compared to soil being absorbed into the ground, raising the water table, and causing pressure change to horizontally push water into the sides of the water bodies. That's how most of most water is transferred. And that's one of these things that when you stop and think about it, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I when I learned that uh, in my undergrad, I told my dad that. I asked my dad that same question. He he figured it out. His background's in physics. He thought about it. He he figured it out. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the overland travel was our genuine under thought of this up until like the 1970s and 1980s. It took a long, it, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of the science that just kind of wasn't getting done. Mm, I, yeah. And, and uh, also, I mean, means of, of communication probably wasn't there as well. You had a lot of bright individuals that were putting out probably really, really interesting work. And it just wasn't being seen by, like you said, like physicists or mathematicians or, or other, other, um, other people that could take it in, you know, put it into light, maybe in better perspective and yeah. uh, maybe bring out the mathematics to, cause you know, you have to have, you know, observation, experimentation and, um, and modeling. Yeah. So, I mean, we heard, we heard that in the, um, the story about the aerosols as well, right? There's exactly. this, Climate science is really very, very interdisciplinary, right? There's oh, yeah. people from dozens of fields and specialties involved Absolutely. in answering the same question where, and so that, that impacts, you know, you need to be good at not only communicating your ideas to someone like a specialist who needs to know what you're talking about, but isn't from your field, mm. but also to understand understand someone else's science too yeah right? very true i couldn't agree more so i'm thinking about let's end this recording here so when we come back we're going to talk about you know how we discover and then how we grab the data uh, from the natural environment how we study it and then how we then model climate and how it changes over time or so stick around and find out I have some exciting news. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics have teamed up to create Ecolite Apparel. Ecolite Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol, such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. 
each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code. And when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite apparel, the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. Ecolite, clothing done right. Well, we're back for part two because we didn't want to drown you with two hours worth of information at one time. <laughs> so I'm your host, Sam, and then we got Dan back here, and we're going to talk about how we get the data from natural processes and then how we take that, how we study it, and then how we model it to make not only the, the people who are studying it, but also people like myself that's probably more on the lay, lay aspect of things to understand these things, get it for public I guess, consumption, so to speak. So let's start off by talking about the data. And would you like to start off by maybe talking about ice cores? Because that's probably a common thing that maybe would come to someone's mind when they think about, you know, studying or, or collecting data. So yeah, yeah, sure. So ice cores, they work because you have regions of permanent ice coverage where year after year after year, the ice builds up. And so the layer of ice is like a snapshot of what the atmosphere in the earth is like at the time that the ice froze. Right. So I think that the ice cores give us about like an 800,000 year or so. Oh, wow. Um, it's a lot yeah, longer than I expected. It, it's, it's quite long. I believe that's about what it is. I don't work with ice cores personally, but I think that's about mm -hmm. how long it goes. Date back into climate. And so how we can infer climate from ice cores is we look at the ratio of the oxygen 16 isotope to the oxygen 18 isotope. So okay. in earth, like how, where we are now, I believe the ratio is normally there's about a thousand oxygen 16 isotopes to two oxygen 18 isotopes. Right. And depending on how warm the weather is or how, sorry, how warm the atmosphere is or how cold the cool the atmosphere is, that mm -hmm. ratio will differ. And it differs because oxygen 16 is lighter than oxygen 18. And mm -hmm. so it will disconnect and it'll move and all sorts of things much easier with less energy than oxygen 18 does. And so when you get areas of higher oxygen 18 concentration, that means that the uh, atmosphere is cooler at the time because oh. there was less energy to push the oxygen 18. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. And it also, the reason why you're getting oxygen 16 and, and 18 in, in ice is because it's so pretty much like the ice formation entraps air molecules or just different mm -hmm. particulate into the ice formation. And it'll, it'll densify layer by layer and kind of just entrap 
these these molecules like uh well different just different things like it could be co2 it could be sulfates it could be oxygen 16 or oxygen 18 be carbon 12 to, to carbon 14 there's there's many different things that they can measure and uh, so what it does is it just entraps what is in the atmosphere in those ice layers and then we could take and understand you know literally giving us ice stratigraphy of of what's what's happened over thousands of years and like you said might even be up to 800,000 years in the past which is really fascinating yeah it all depends on like the depth that your ice goes right so yeah. antarctica greenland have much deeper ice cores than than other other regions that also have permanent ice but yeah and so it, exactly right it's it's air, air pockets trapped in the ice that preserve the atmosphere as it was at the time that the ice formed and then so, I, I think that there's also a way to date uh, hydrogen isotopes as well in the same vein as the oxygen isotopes, but yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it, yeah, I was just trying to throw out everything that came to my mind at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, because even uh, if, you're, if you're seeing like sulfates in uh, ice cores, then you're like, oh, well, mm -hmm. then there must have been an abundance of volcanic activity at this time. And then that, that could be a contributor or it could just be something that's, that's man-made possibly. So yeah. it's something more to study. And that's something that you can get a bit more information from in, in sediment cores, which is a very similar uh, idea as mm. uh, an ice core. You take a cylindrical core of sediment and you look at the different layers. And the big thing with sediment cores that you're looking for is you're looking for microorganisms. These are very, very, very small things, you know, in the micrometers or uh, nanometers in size. Mm -hmm. And we, I'm, most of the ones that exist, they still exist today in places living. Yep. And so what we're looking for is we're look, we say, okay, we know microorganism A exists in these conditions and microorganism B exists in these conditions. C exists in these conditions. When we see all three together, well, it's a Venn diagram, right? The conditions need to be just right for all three of them to exist. And so that's how we can kind of infer past climate based on the presence of these microorganisms all being in the same place at the same time. Mm, I like that. I that's one thing I didn't really think about uh, in terms of, of that. So, uh, and also, I guess it would be important to note that this is definitely a short-term look into the past, right? It's probably hundreds to maybe some, some thousands of years that we can look back. It's definitely in the thousands of years. I don't know what? how how many thousands it is, but mm -hmm. yeah. Again, because sediment piles up, but it doesn't pile up at like extremely fast rates, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you take like a, you know, 10 foot sediment core, you're going back pretty far. Yeah, good point. Right, because then once the sediment kind of sinks, then it could be, depending upon what the geologic uh, formation or, or activity is at that time, it could yeah, that's, sedimentary rock or what have you. And then, you know. Then... Yeah, that's that's a good point too, that uh, mm -hmm. depending on like the local conditions, there might be like a lot of sediment buildup yeah. always, or maybe like a period of very, of a lot of sediment buildup or it might just be quiet all the time, you know? So yeah, you, you need an understanding of the site that you're looking at. Right. So this sediment then could potentially get turned into rocks, which is another thing that we want to talk about is rock cores, which gives us a really, really long uh, yeah. time frame picture of what's happened. So you want to take that away? 
Yeah, so so rock cores are actually how we discovered the Ice Ages for the first time, for example, and they go back very, very far. Rock cores work very similarly to ice cores in the sense that they're using ratios of oxygen isotopes compared to each other. But what, how we're doing it for rock cores is we're looking at like ferrous oxides, so like, you know, iron oxides, right. things like this, and they're magnetically bonded to the different rocks. Yes. And so that's how we're getting this, right? Is that there's these uh, various iron oxides and things. Some of them will be of uh, with oxygen 16 isotopes. Some of them will be with oxygen 18 isotopes. They magnetically bond with the rocks. The rock formation is built upon and built upon, or it's, you know, it moves downward and we can determine dates by carbon dating or uh, by dating the rocks in another way. Mm -hmm. And then we can determine atmosphere concentration by looking at the ratios of the isotopes nah, that's attached so to the rocks. That's so cool. I mean, probably a good visual representation. I was just at the Grand Canyon a few weeks ago and being able to see the different rock layers. And mm. whenever you go there, you're like, oh, wow, this is really beautiful. But like the science behind it is is even more beautiful than the site, in my opinion. But <laughs> don't shoot me for what I said. Uh, like if you the look geologists at geologists will love you. No. Yeah, for sure. For sure <laughs> right. uh, so like if you look at the Moncopi red sandstone versus like uh, the Coconino white sandstone, you get obvious differences in, in color, right? Because it's the sun, you know, it's, it's radiation interacting with the rocks differently based on its composition of the, of the stone. And the Moncopi becomes a lot more reddish to your eyes compared to the white coconino sandstone looking white because of its silica compared to the Moncopi red sandstone having high iron oxides. I don't remember which one, please don't shoot me for that one again. Uh, but like, it's pretty cool. Like just, I just wanted to come a little full circle and throw some geology in there. So, uh, the, so rocks like in capture, like you said, they, they capture what's going on in the atmosphere and, and also the different activity that's going on, you know, like silica could have been from high volcanic activity, which created, you know, silica sandstone, and then it formed the white coconino sandstone formation. So, I mean, it tells us a lot about what went on at that time and then being able to use, uranium to lead uh, dating or, mm. or carbon dating. It, I mean, obviously dating methods is dependent upon its beta decay, which tells us the time frame in which we can date. So ultimately, you know, we can use that to then tell us what the heck went on over hundreds of millions of years, or even just, you know, uh, if you're using carbon dating could be in the last like a couple hundred thousand years. So. Yeah. This is a bit of a tangent, but the <laughs> <laughs> we've done that enough. It's okay. <laughs> that that's yeah, that's true. The um, uranium lead is actually quite interesting because uh, I know that there was an issue when scientists were trying to determine the age of the Earth because mm. they were looking at zircon crystals because zircon doesn't have lead that naturally forms in them. Mm. But depending on the samples, they were getting all sorts of different answers, and the reason was because of ethyl where we were burning ethyl which had lead in it and so that was getting into the atmosphere and getting literally everywhere and so any zircon that was exposed to the atmosphere at the time where we were burning ethyl had now been contaminated with lead and so we couldn't use them anymore oh that's so that's so cool that came so full circle wow uh, i was just watching a video by Veritasium, Veritasium, 
mm-hmm. and he talked about like the the person that killed the most people in like in like history and it wasn't like obviously hitler or stalin or uh, genghis khan or whatever it was this guy that was developing like lead fuel like lead based oh, yeah. fuel <laughs> with he ethyl gave, gave everyone lead poisoning yeah yeah and, and that guy also contributed to so much weird misinformation for how old the earth was so that's pretty cool like wow not only was he killing people he was also distorting the minds of of uh <laughs> or distorting test results <laughs> wow but yeah so that that was such a huge tangent but a lot of good information there uh so the next one that uh, are we done with rock cores do you want to move on yeah yeah sure Okay, so the next one that we wanted to highlight was dendrochronology. So do you want to talk about dendrochronology or tree rings? Yeah, so like you said, dendrochronology is the fancy way of saying uh, tree rings. And this is one of the more popular and kind of like more well-known, I guess. It's like ice cores, right? It's a very well-known way to tell climate. And it's sort of like an easy way to show people climate proxies if you can find a tree stump you can see dendrochronology to Mm -hmm. to a degree and uh, essentially how it works is the same way an ice car works you drill into a tree and you pull out a core Mm -hmm. and the core will be an alternating patterns of growth and kind of stagnation and growth and stagnation growth stagnation and that's how you tell how old it is right so it grows in the summer when it has leaves and it can photosynthesize and that gives it the energy to grow. And then in the winters, at least for broadleaf trees, it sheds its leaves in order to not freeze to death in the winter, which is Mm -hmm. actually why it does that. Mm -hmm. And it sacrifices growth by doing that. It can't grow without its leaves. So it stays the same size for a while and the tree doesn't grow and get the the short thick lines. And then when summer comes, it it grows again. Mm -hmm. And so, Trees also, as it turns out, grow more when it's hotter out, as long as, you know, they have the minimum requirements. They have some water and some nitrogen and stuff like this. And so by looking at trees, you can, A, see things like forest fires. Those things, those will be very visible in tree Mm -hmm. rings. But by measuring the length of the growth cycle or the growth spurt of a tree, you can infer how hot the climate was. That's awesome. And also... It's mostly heat, but then also like how much, like what was going on in terms of, of weather at that time with water, water consumption of the trees, right? But yeah, more, it, more, more focused on heat, I would say. Yeah, it pretty much just needs kind of the bare minimum to stay alive, right? Of course. And then important to note, like the, the wildfire aspect, obviously not, not now because the, ma- the vast majority of wildfires that goes on, at least in North America, is, is um, human caused rather than. And there's statistics to back that up. I just don't want to say the wrong percentage and be gaslit or something. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, wildfires is a natural thing uh, with arid landscapes and, and uh, hotter temperatures. So if you see like a, like a black encrusted ring in the, in the tree core, wildfires, yeah. and you yeah. can easily attribute that to what was going on with the climate at the time. So yeah, really cool stuff. It's also yeah. just good because wildfires themselves are kind of a weak proxy for climate change, right? Like as the climate is warmer and drier, more mm-hmm. wildfires occur. So mm-hmm. if you can see frequency of wildfires in a tree ring pattern, that's almost an additional proxy for you to for you to use in your data. Absolutely. Wow. So much cool stuff here. 
So the the last one, I'm not. I'm going to try not to mess this up. <laughs> the meteor the meteorological stations. I did mess up, but meteor, meteorological oh, stations. So pretty much all the different ones that we've been talking about so far have been how to reconstruct historic climate, right? So mm -hmm. when you look at a graph like the hockey stick graph or like that parts per million graph that you showed earlier on carbon, yeah, those are done through you know, hundreds or thousands of climate proxies, generally yeah. multiple different types of proxies. So all of the ones that we've mentioned, maybe others from across mm -hmm. the world. But when we're talking about modern climate data, it's almost all collected at meteorological stations and very special, specialized like flux stations. And these things exist throughout the world not evenly north america has a lot europe has a lot mm -hmm. asia has this amount you know africa south america uh we need higher densities of them um yeah. to accurately reconstruct their climate and accurately represent their climate which is a big issue right now is that we have really good we have good data density in certain parts of the world but not everywhere in the world mm -hmm. but yeah we have so these stations are set up everywhere they collect different amounts of data depending on where they are some people and also depending on what the researchers are interested in, right? So some researchers, uh, like hydrologists or hydrometeorologists, they only care about water. Maybe not only, but like 95% they care about water. Mm -hmm. So they might have like a dozen different precipitation gauges around their site. Like they might make the data open source so anyone can go and get the data from it. But, you know, they don't collect wind speed. They don't collect uh radiation budgets they don't really collect humidity or pressure things like this right but other other some sites are kind of all inclusive and they do collect all of these things mm -hmm. and that's good because if you're modeling climate we need all of these meteorological forcing variables in order to do it accurately especially yes. in the modern era and so we've been we have hundreds of these stations and we've been collecting data in some cases as far back as you know the 30s 40s 50s in other cases you know 70s 80s but whenever the stations have come up we pretty much have a contiguous set data set running from when they've been set up to now sometimes daily if they're kind of coarser data sets Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes all the way down to quarter hourly, right? So every 15 minutes, they'll collect a piece of data. Wow. Ooh. Yep. So let me ask this question and just so it, it's clarity purposes. So you did state that we have a bunch of locations across the world, but we're lacking in, in uh, Africa and South America and, and probably, and I'm, I, I would just go to assume like lower class socioeconomic areas. So my question is, do you think that's skewing the models at all? Do you think with uh, increased amount of locations, we would have even better models? Oh, for sure. There's no yeah. doubt about it that we'd have. Even I just wanted to models. ask. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, is that we'd probably have even more damning models if I was a betting man, because a lot of the areas that we're missing are kind of equatorial or near equatorial. And that's oh, yeah. an area that you feel heating a lot. Right. So agreed. Yeah. <laughs> not not the most you see the most heating at the poles because those are the cool coolest areas but we true. still see a lot yeah true yeah we're, we're missing a big chunk of the change that for sure well maybe we should talk about so i really want to talk about you know how you capture radiation at these stations uh now 
so I'm assuming that you probably take the data and you split it in terms of what you're getting with uh, short or high energy radiation from the sun and then also uh, long wave or low energy radiation. So do you do that kind of? So I've seen people collect the data in the field. I've gone mm -hmm. out into the field and it almost looks like a solar panel almost that collects the radiation Mm -hmm. And it gives you kind of results for, for what you're getting at the time. The actual mechanics behind it, I'm not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, I'm familiar with, with some of them. I know that the eddy covariance stations, which are the stations that I uh, work with directly, we use a sonar system. So it, it looks it's kind, of hard, kind of like this, right? Where these are sonar sensors. Okay. And they bounce sound in between each other, and that measures the wind speed. And they also have an infrared gas analyzer that nice. measures water vapor and CO2. And so they have a bunch of different sensors set up that measure different variables. Again, generally what people are most interested in and in mm -hmm. areas that they're interested in as well. So you set them up, you know, if you're interested in studying forests, you set it up in a forest, a big tower sticking out of the forest. Or uh, if you're interested in uh, cold weather systems or cold weather influences, then you'll go up into the poles and set these things up. Uh, okay. Maybe you're, in you're interested in snow, then you want different sensors that are able to detect snow rather than able to detect rain. Because you know, if you just want, if you just care about rain, you can get like a tipping bucket, right? It fills up, it empties, it fills up, it empties, it fills up, it empties, and it measures how many times it just, you know, adds a plus one every time it empties. So you get some sense of precipitation, right? Right. But if you're doing snow, that doesn't really work, right? Mm -hmm. Just like from a mechanically. So one way you could get snow, you do snow is again with sonar. You have sonar aimed at the ground and it's pinging back. And mm -hmm. as snow coverage adds up, the sound wave attenuates differently through the snow than it does through air. And so by looking at how the time difference has changed, you can infer how deep the snow is. Nice. Nice. I like that. Yeah, it's, a, it's just the reason why I asked and also to to literally get you to explain that a little bit more. I was thinking about radiation in terms of it could tell us, you know, what we're receiving and then also what is still being encapsulated in, into the atmosphere. Now, I'd have to I'd have to sit down and look at the solar panel science of that. Like, I don't know, do they have a different array that captures different different bandwidths? Or I I'm not sure, but I think that would be interesting to find out. But, it should it'll it'll capture across the electromagnetic uh, spectrum. Yeah, whatever, whichever so. yeah, whichever one they're using. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't imagine it would only capture certain wavelengths. Right, right, yeah. yeah, and then you, all you need is just data that tells you the, you know, yeah. the properties of the waves, and you can, yeah, exactly, figure yeah, out what's could, going on. You can see the magnitude across the wavelength. You can split it into the parts that you're interested in. So we know this is the how the sun comes in. So we can split that off. We know this is what the Earth emits. We split that off. Right, exactly. We have we have incoming short wave, outgoing long wave. Right. Okay, so you get you have ice cores, you have sediment cores, you have dendrochronology, you have rock cores, and you have all these meteorological stations. So this is, there's all this data, you know, from heck hundreds of millions of years to, to where we are today. What kind of models are, are created 
by this this data this huge bank of data yeah so believe it or not we're not actually quite done with the data so okay that's not sure so (laughs) so there's broad very 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 broadly speaking there's two types of models i'm not even going to say that that's that's this is too broad so (laughs) there's models that we're interested in that they take the meteorological forcing and they simulate the atmospheric movements. They simulate uh, surface atmosphere interactions, uh, atmosphere, terrestrial, oceanic interactions, all these things. These are called general circulation models or general climate models. And there's dozens of them everywhere. Canada has one. America has multiple, I would guess. Europe has some. Um, every country will probably have their own, right? Mm-hmm. And these things are built up of multiple smaller models inside of them. So the Canadian model is built out of a atmospheric model, an oceanic model, and a land surface scheme. And the land surface scheme is where I spent, do my research in. And what the land surface scheme is, is it's basically low atmosphere, and Earth surface. So it looks at precipitation mm-hmm. and nitrogen carbon exchanges from the lower atmosphere into the biosphere. Okay. And then from the biosphere, either back into the atmosphere or into a water system, essentially. And, oh, okay. And so that's where it's interested in. And so these things model everything they model vegetation growth they model uh soil infiltration under multiple like they'll have multiple geologic layers they'll look at uh aerodynamic resistance thermodynamics so like heat movement uh, through the system the albedos of the canopy or of the ground uh evaporation and transpiration which is just we kind of refer to just as one thing which is evapotranspiration so it's the movement of water Mm-hmm. All, all these things. And it takes all of its results and then it gives them to the other models as they need the data. And so these models all, the what these big GCMs do is they take all of this these models and let all the models interact with each other for however long you have forcing data for. Okay. And then it will produce a bunch of different results that were made, right? So if we're interested in stream flow of a region, then mm-hmm. then we can get that. If we're interested in the net primary production of like the biosphere, we can get that. If we're interested in carbon exchange or radiation budgets, you know, you can you can get all of that data out of it. Jeez. That's kind of like the first type of climate yeah. model, I guess, mm-hmm. just very broadly again mm-hmm. but the second type is more of the of the physics side of things like the pure physics and it's more interested in getting those initial forcing variables that we talked about the short wave radiation long wave radiation pressure humidity temperature wind speeds all these things mm-hmm. and predicting them into the future so nice. we can get all, the, all those and more you know m- many more different variables but nothing as specific as what that first model gave us, right? Like we can't get 
you know, carbon budgets, root biomass. We can't get anything that specific out of these models, right? right? But we can get all of these meteorological forcing variables, you know, decades or 100 years into the future, right? And then we take those forcing data built by those models and we feed them into the first set of models. Okay. So now we can get these specific variables and see how these things change over 100 years. That'd be really cool just to see the, the different parameters of that model. I think that, that would be really interesting. Uh, I, can, I can send you some some stuff afterwards if that's I, something you'd yeah. be interested in. Yeah. yeah, why not? I'd like to just uh, take a peek. Do you do anything with human influence? You know, does do they try to like put some sort of factor uh, into the model that associates human damage with a pressure, temperature, humidity, uh, et cetera? Yeah, a little bit. It's something that's starting to be incorporated more now. Mm -hmm. So like what we were talking about before with land covers, how land covers all act a bit differently. A lot mm -hmm. of the models, at least the model that I work with, it, they have different rules depending on what the land coverage is because sure. things act differently depending on what the land coverage is, right? And mm -hmm. so one of these land coverages is impermeable, which includes urban systems, right? Yeah. And so that's something that needs to be uh, explicitly told to the model when it's being initialized, mm -hmm. which areas are impermeable. And you also get areas, so this is actually something that I'm personally working on right now, is models, at least our model, underperforming in heavily managed areas. So what that means is that when you have like an agricultural region where there's a lot of human interaction, they're at, people are adding a lot of water, people are yeah. you know, adding nitrogen, or they're adding you know, fertilizers, things like this the model doesn't know that that's happening. So how do we account, you know, how do we account for that, right? And the model performs perfectly fine in, in other biomes. If you bring it up to a natural wetland or a bore, you know, a boreal forest or something, mm -hmm. it'll represent everything perfectly fine. But, you know, areas of heavy human interaction are still, you know, that's where things still need to be improved on. Yeah, and, and just as we're mapping these uh, physical phenomena, you know, like you said, we also have to map and understand human phenomena, like what is being emitted, what is being taken, what's being added to the system. And then that'll literally, like you said, it will have more information to have a better model. The mm -hmm. models, you know, are as accurate as the parameters are, you know, like how many parameters you have. And uh, I just it decreases your level of uncertainty over time. I mean, it's just a, you know, an approaching infinity thing. You're never going to be 100% accurate, but you can definitely make it more accurate over time. Yeah, for sure. And one way that this is kind of being solved is less from a, a technical perspective of just writing better code, but mm -hmm. more of getting better data. A lot of people now are working with farmers to put up stations on their land so nice. we can cap these cycles of growing crops and harvesting crops. It's reliable enough that if you have the data for it, the computer sees this as a natural phenomena. This is going to happen. It can, you know, account for, for this Definitely. if you, if you have the data for it. Right. So, but you need to, you know, this is another time where scientists need to work with community members in order to produce better, you know, better science. Couldn't and agree going, more. Yeah, and going back to what you're saying about uh, nothing's going to be like you know 100% right. There's 
a very popular saying in the modeling sphere where no model is right, but some models are useful. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And so the first course I took actually at the University of Arizona was in modeling. That was one of the first things that they said to us on day one on building these climate models. But uh, with that in mind, I don't want people to get the idea that climate models aren't accurate because they are very accurate. Yeah. And where climate models might be weaker in singularity, so like, for example, the Canadian global circulation model is weaker than the American one mm -hmm. in a lot of places, but one place where it significantly outperforms the American one is in cold weather regions mm -hmm. because Canada, Canada has a lot of them and we Fair. care and we care about, there's a lot of people who their entire research careers are in cold weather systems in Canada. And mm -hmm. so we have a lot of really good experts that the guys who are writing these models reach out to and they learn from nice. and they include the most up-to-date science on a lot of them. And so what happens is when, where one model might not represent something very well, when you combine, you know, 30, 40, 50 of these models mm -hmm. and you take the average outputs of them, those average outputs are extremely accurate to the warming that we're seeing and to what we're observing in reality. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I grab out of this is, you know, one country can't do it all. It has to be a global effort. Just just as and just a preview for the, the final segment between us is we need global efforts to be able to make change. I mean, we're, you know, we're a collective society just because the United States stops building new coal-fired power plants doesn't mean anything unless we get China to stop and, and Russia to stop and other big superpowers, or even just like the, 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 the third world countries that are starting to gain traction to become second and first world. They have to do it by their energy, right? I mean, that's, that's how you become a superpower is never mind. I don't want to go there. Can of worms, can of worms, but <laughs> just saying like uh, energy is important. And, uh, uh, you have to do, you have to have global understanding, global education and global commitment. And without that, you know, we're not going to do anything. I mean, we'll yeah. do something. I mean, like, hmm. I mean, Canada and, and, and the U.S. have done a lot uh, in terms of, of making strides. So as other major European countries uh, in terms of sustainability and, and what they can do. But like, I mean, to to have the best effects, we got to have a, a global commitment. Yeah. Yeah. And go, going back a little bit to uh, to the model. I'm sorry uh, about that. No, 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 no worries, no worries, no worries. We'll we'll talk more about it in the the next segment, as you you alluded to. Mm -hmm. But uh, I I just think that this is kind of important to mention, just because it's something that you hear a lot about how inaccurate climate models are, and it's just it's just not really true. And part of it is willful. I've seen a lot of climate models where that are just you know, doctored essentially, right? Or like results that are doctored to make them seem less reliable where mm. you'll see the term in climate science called representative concentration pathways, which are essentially like trajectories that are adopted by the IPCC. Okay. And there's a bunch of different ones and each one represents different a severity of scenario like how well do we respond to these things right yeah yeah and so these are done via creation of you know a 
swarm of models predicting in the future given different starting conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And so you often see instances where people will show the most extreme examples, right? Oh, climate scientists predicted, you know, we're going to get this much warming when really we're at this much warming. Look how different this is, right? And they're neglecting this is, you know, one of 10 projections based on if we continuously exponentially increase CO2 usage, yeah. right? Well, we haven't done that. So this, you know, this this example that you're showing is 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 meaningless and mm -hmm. you photoshopped out the rest of them, right? Or there's, you know, there's a good example of, um, I, I can't remember the name of the man right now, but he produced three estimates based on back in the 1980s. And mm -hmm. when his results are shown in bad faith, they only ever show the most extreme estimate. Of course. When in reality, his mid-tier estimate, i.e. we will slowly begin to taper off of CO2, it's basically we go cold turkey, we slowly taper off, or we change nothing. Those were his three predictions right uh -huh. the slowly taper off one we're almost dead on yeah like, we're a little bit more we've observed a little bit more heating than he predicted with his taper off one but you know we're nowhere near his we don't stop we stop nothing so when people in bad faith show talk about his work they only show the we stop nothing model and show look you know isn't this isn't this wild these models are, are are worthless they don't they don't show us anything and then the other time that it happens is just people don't talk about it right like we hear you know model predicts x uh warming in decade or by 2050 or by 2100 or whatever right mm -hmm. and then what it's talking about is so far away we either forget that anything was made or if we do remember we say oh well I don't hear anything about that now. It must have been proven wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I think, and then a lot of that lies within like personal agenda and uh, confirmation bias. Like a lot of these people that are putting like the radical things out there uh, are just trying to to push their agenda for for like you know a more sustainable planet or uh, you know uh, to to get rid of fossil fuels or something like that. So they'll they'll push out like this is what four degrees will do at twenty forty and and then they show all these nasty things where, like you said, like just in terms of the United States, I, I can't speak upon Canada, but like the United States has met their Paris agreement for their most recent goal. It was supposed to be getting down to a certain percentage of emission of, of CO2, like to go to say like percentage emission to zero net zero, zero carbon. Uh, I think we went from like 22% to 17. Our goal is was 22% we hit 17, which is really good. Like really good. We're, we're meeting and exceeding standards, which doesn't always happen, but like we also have to have a sense of reality versus like, like these extreme end models. And like you said, having someone that can project the, the accuracy of these models project like, Hey, this, we did 10 models. And then this is more accurately what's happening today. These are, these are what, these are like the different scenarios of which could happen because if you ignore those models also, say like the, the the four degrees in it by 2040 say if we ignored everything and we just said piss on the paris agreement uh then it could most definitely become like that so it's also good to understand that sometimes there's an agenda but then also there's somebody that's saying like if we don't do this if we reverse and we let history repeat itself we could be here at this time and experience these things yeah 
Uh, first off, uh, I, I didn't know America hit the Par- its Paris Agreement, which is it's good to hear that they did. Canada nowhere close to hitting its. Uh, and part of that is because the Paris Agreement is was set, like the countries set their own goal, right? Mm, so yeah. some countries were very... Very proactive, some were not. Yeah, yeah, some... Maybe. Yeah, uh, I think South Korea was is an example of a country that was took a big risk in saying that they're going to do a lot and so far have managed to keep it. So, you know, golf clap for South Korea. Good job. Yeah. Uh, Canada, I think, was kind of like middle of the ground. Yeah, it's kind of middle of the ground. And then it didn't it, it we we aren't meeting it unless we do like something pretty drastic as far as I'm aware. So not oh, great for us. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, we can take this opportunity if you'd like to move into the last part on sort of what what we can do yeah because if we were to go any further with this it would probably get political and i don't want to go there so <laughs> so we're gonna go to the last uh <laughs> we're gonna go to the last segment here uh, we're gonna take a short commercial break and then when we come back we're gonna talk about ideas that are circulating in the scientific community in terms of what we can do uh, globally about climate change so stick around and find out Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle, and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same Seabar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Cbar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. Well, we're back. Uh, I hope you've been paying attention for this awesome escapade in terms of climate, all this interesting history, uh, the knowledge and, and, uh, and science behind a lot of the how we capture data and then also how we collect it and and understand it and project it uh, on a global scale. But this last segment, we're going to be talking about how we can combat climate change. And this isn't like we're going to tell you to ride your bike to work or um, take public transportation. I mean, that is a good, those are good things to do. Definitely do those. But we're going to be talking, I think, on a larger scale applications that could project us towards uh, being carbon neutral or working our way there. So one of the first things that we want to talk about is carbon capture initiatives. And there's plenty of them from at least my uh, my surface research. But Dan, maybe you have a few that, that come off the top of your head that you would like to talk about. Yeah. So the first one that kind of comes to the top of my head is direct air capture. Yeah. So it's where you capture CO2 directly from the atmosphere and you sequester it and you kind of store it away, whether it can be in like physical bricks or in just carbon dioxide gas and just exactly what it sounds like. You just pull it out of the atmosphere and you store it somewhere. And 
prevent it from re-entering the atmosphere. It's not extremely efficient, but it's sort of like the most obvious method, I guess, if you want to mention it that way. It's like when you think of carbon capture, this is mm-hmm. literal carbon capture. <laughs> yeah, no, literally. But and, and carbon capture doesn't mean that you have to particularly put it back into the ground. Like I know Iceland does that uh, with a lot of their geothermal plants. But mm-hmm. like what you could do is also incentivize carbon capture, turn it. I know carbon dioxide is really important for like desalination plants. They're also really important for brewing the brewing industry, obviously. It's also important for, for different, uh, different fuels, biofuels that could be made if the fossil fuel industry is trying to transition more towards, you know, these biofuels in terms of methane and, and also uh, carbon-related fuels. They can, they can take advantage of that. There's plenty of different ways in which we can incentivize and literally like create like a free market effect for for carbon capture that could just literally dominate the game and get us to where we need to go oh Uh, for sure yeah Yeah. make it economical and then they're like people are going to pursue it yeah yeah absolutely i actually worked with a guy uh, while i was doing my master's he's a research associate in the lab that i worked on who he also owned a farm and so he had very strong opinions on government subsidized carbon capture initiatives Mm -hmm. where the idea was that the government could help farmers pay for the initial investment into some of these carbon capture storage and so you you get things like they need to gather up all the fallow and burn it and spread it out well that's releasing co2 and that could be captured and used or as biofuels or things things along those lines yeah most definitely you know you mentioned farming another really good tactic for combating climate change on a large scale you might not think of it because you're thinking about like small scales farming but regenerative farming regenerative farming can can help capture and keep carbon in our soils and rebuild biomass across a large spectrum because that's something that we're suffering from right now is a lack of good soil good nutrient-based soil so regenerative farming is definitely one if you're not familiar with that definitely look it up like i've I've been reading about regenerative farming, but they have some pretty nice short videos on YouTube that you can watch from good sources that tell you just like the basics of regenerative farming and how it works. I think that's how we have to go in terms of like agriculture. I don't know if this is the exact type of regenerative farming you're talking about, but something that you'll see, uh, at least in my neck of the woods, maybe in yours as well, farmers will divide their fields into several yes. several sections. Yep. And so they will grow in one section and let other sections fallow, I think is the term, where it's kind of you let natural them to grow naturally and to die naturally. And every year you shift what plot you're growing on. And so that allows uh, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, mm-hmm. you know, the various chemicals needed for healthy crop growth to return to the soil and help preserve the soil quality. Uh, because like you said, soil is considered a non-renewable resource you might be able to say it's technically renewable but it's renewable over very long time scales right yeah and so stretching out the good quality soil that you have for as long as possible is integral oh yeah most definitely yeah. and to add a, an extra factor onto the regenerative farming you can do like what, what you said like make squares in your farming area and, and let things you know grow up and die but you can also use grazing tactics and uh, biomass from like from livestock to literally regenerate uh, the biomass 
in your farming sections. So they'll they'll like graze in one area, graze it down to where you know you still have living plant material at the top, but then you just rotate them over to the next section and let that grow back up. What it does is it is it keeps the roots growing. It keeps the plants from dying and the root matter will grow longer and, and stronger, allowing water retention and nutrient retention in the in the soil. Obviously also allowing more carbon capture as well. So there's some high estimates in terms of what regenerative farming can do for us across the board with carbon capture. It's very exciting. And also we need agriculture to survive <laughs> as humans. So let's get on it. <laughs> yep, but, yes, we do. But the next thing we, we, we could talk about here is, is sustainable energy. And this is a hot debate that you could, I do plan on making uh, a full episode on sustainable energy. Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's in the works, got a lot of stuff going on here, but. Yeah. So energy is the largest use of burning fossil fuels. So any instance where we're trying to go for net zero carbon emissions, it has to involve sustainable energy. Yeah. And exactly what that sustainable energy will look like will depend a lot on where you live. Agreed. One of the issues with renewable energy or sustainable energy is that it's not as easy as just throwing down a coal plant, right? And sending out energy through a, a, a power grid. A lot of sustainable energy kind of waxes and wanes, right? So if you're looking at solar, some months you're going to generate more solar than other, depending on where you live. Sometimes even on, you know, day-to-day -day weather systems, it'll be cloudy, you'll be generating less solar power. Or mm -hmm. if it's wind, you'll be getting less wind energy. And so when you're looking at renewable energy systems, you need to have both the energy generation as well as an energy storage that you can... in times of when you're generating more energy than the grid calls for, you can actively be storing for times where you're when you're generating less energy and also diversifying your energy portfolio, if you want to call it that, having multiple different uh, energy systems because, you know, when it's overcast and kind of stormy, well, that's bad for solar, but it's good for wind, right? So, mm -hmm. so some are good at different times. And then the other thing to talk about, I guess, with renewable, well, there's a lot of talk about the renewable. Renewable is a very interesting topic. You also have things like geothermal power, yes. where geothermal power is really good wherever it's available. So I think I read something recently that was saying that LA, like Los Angeles, has a large enough geothermal reserve that the entire city can be powered on geothermal, which is really good for LA. Yes. When you get even when you get up into uh, where I live in Canada, you know, like half a million buildings in Canada are powered exclusively by geothermal. And it's basically wherever geothermal reserves exist, they can power anything. It's just yeah. where they don't exist, can't do anything about it. Right. And it's kind of the same for tidal systems. Right. Whenever you're on the coast or if you're in specific areas, so Canada has the Bay of Fundy, which is between the provinces of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, generates the most tidal energy per square kilometer out of anywhere in the world. Whoa. The tidal energy generated in the Bay of Fundy is enough to power all of Atlantic Canada in perpetuity. No kidding. Holy crap. Yeah, it's extremely difficult to do it because the tidal energy and the currents in the area are so big that there's like multiple meter long boulders that roll across the bottom of the bay and so 
they're having a hell of a time figuring out how to build generators that can withstand all of the forces, right? But yeah. if that if that's something that they figure out, you know, that's a gold mine for energy, right? 100%. Yeah. 100%. And then you also get nuclear. Yeah. Which I was going to bring that up yep. as an insurgence because what you see a lot of the times is that because of the variability and even storage questions with uh, with renewable energy, at times of crisis, say like your grid goes down, you have an insurgence capability where you can infuse like nuclear power, which is much more reliable today than obviously when it when it was with different events that happened that makes people scared. The the, yeah. the way that we build them today is so much more so much safer in terms of the, the design, the reactors, the the radioisotopes that we use. Everything across the board has gotten better. It's a big we had a big learning curve in terms of nuclear, but also just like how it doesn't produce any emissions like in terms of the, the nuclear energy itself and what you get in terms of waste isn't even close to what you get in terms of waste between the fossil fuel, let's just say natural gas, coal, oil, et cetera, just across that spectrum. So to have it as an insurgence in, in times of need, and then also, like you said, like you have to know uh, the landscape. So maybe nuclear is a better way to go in a place that doesn't have good solar or have good wind capabilities. So it's it's definitely the answer uh, dependent upon where you're at in the world. Yeah. And not only that, but <laughs> sorry, you summed that up very well. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I did. <laughs> yeah. So I was just thinking because you summed up all the good parts about it. Now I have to say some bad things, unfortunately. Please do. No, that's I'm, not totally ha- cool. I'm not happy about that. Yeah. So one of the issues with nuclear is that it's getting better, first of all, but nuclear plants take a long time to build. About five so, to 10 years, right? More more towards the, the latter end. I yeah, would say. yeah. And a lot of so, it's because of breaking ground. It takes a yeah. long time to break ground. God, yeah, continue. yeah. And so building a another renewable energy uh, system like a solar field or a wind farm or whatever that generates the same um, megawatts that Mm. a nuclear plant does takes about half the time. Yes. Nuclear, much more reliable, like you said, technically not sustainable because it does use a finite um, product. There's, you know, a good amount of it. We're not going to run out of uranium or thorium anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Just, just a technicality, I suppose. Nuclear also much better for more remote regions yeah uh, and especially like the small modular reactors are quite good mm-hmm. for that so yeah it, they have their they have their downsides and their benefits most sustainable energy scenarios or like futures involve a hybrid of nuclear and the more conventional sustainable energy systems yeah some of them are only the sustainable energy systems i haven't seen only nuclear ones but you know conceptually that could work too i suppose yeah I know you did say about how it could be technically unsustainable, uh, but for right now, in terms of what we're doing with an energy shift, so with nuclear, and I've, I've heard this term, and I, I like to say it, say it over and over again, is that the waste that is contributed to one lifetime per person is about the size of a Coke can. And right now, it's kind of not feasible for us to recycle the matter that comes out from the waste of, of nuclear um, energy production, just because that's not technically the focus at the moment. But say like, 
inducing using um, nuclear as the insurgent an important part of the energy grid. Let's say like right now, like we incorporate it, but maybe in a hundred or two hundred years, we figure out a great way in a cost efficient way to recycle that material. If you weigh and measure uh, the waste compared to the fossil fuel industry to nuclear, it's not even close. So it's just a matter of right now, this is the focus. We need to answer the terms of usage before we can answer the terms of what we can do to recycle the material. Then the material will still be there <laughs> in, in 100 years. So it's like, it's just a matter of what can we do right now. But you're, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the time scale to get renewable energy versus uh, nuclear energy. It's still, you know, it's like double the time. Yeah, I mean, the uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a much more famous quote here, but it's like the best time to build nuclear was a decade ago. The second best time to build nuclear is right now, right? So, Agreed. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, I, I um, but some of the problems with nuclear, too, it can be fixed with thorium reactors. And I'm yeah, gonna, that's another I'll, thing I was going to say. I'll shill thorium every day of the week, right? Thorium's great. It's way better than uranium, but mm -hmm. you can't make weapons out of it, so we don't use it. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, that's literally the only reason we use uranium because you can build bombs out of them. So we may as well kill two birds with one stone and also use it for uh, for power generation. But mm -hmm. and then in addition to that, what you're saying about um, the dangers uh, or like the former dangers of uh, of nuclear reactors, fossil fuels have direct like direct impacts of fossil fuel burning has killed probably hundreds of times more people. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I think it's like hundreds of times more people than nuclear reactors have killed directly, right? Oh my gosh. Because like all the health impacts that come from, you know, mining the coal, working on the plants, inhaling like smog in smog yeah. in like filled cities, there's all sorts of horrible health Im impacts from all of these things. So mm -hmm. it like fossil fuels have a death count and that death count isn't, you know, limited to people who were unfortunate enough to be working when an oil well caught fire or something like that, right? It's indiscriminate almost in yeah. who, in who it, it, it gets. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. So yeah, sustainable energy is definitely like the big thing because we have created a society that needs an ample amount of energy to do what we need to do. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's only going to, well, we say it's only going to increase. Hope that isn't the case, but um, <laughs> we have to answer the call in terms of energy use. Yeah, yeah, it'll definitely increase as a larger percent of the world gets yes. access to more luxuries, right? Then it could also help yeah. countries become first world, answering the call to to poverty in terms of a, a different energy system. So the last couple things I, I'd like to talk about first is is land use because. My opinion, uh, this, is, this is totally opinion. I think we use land horribly, like horribly uh, yeah. because we could for a long period of time. Now we kind of can't. It's not a good thing in terms of, of agricultural use. And uh, by agriculture, I probably mean livestock agriculture and then how we've done urbanization was just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> In, but, in north in North America, especially um, cities were essentially designed around cars, right? And having yep. access to cars, which makes it uh, very 
fossil fuel intensive to live in a city and it's not it's not your fault to yeah. that you're, you have to drive a car for work you know that's mm -hmm. how these things are are designed right and uh, a lot of them are very low density uh, a lot of north american cities are are much lower density than say european cities for yes. example and so you have to travel further to get all of you know your necessities to get to your gym to go to your work to you know go to your doctors to buy uh to buy food all these things yeah. yeah and then another kind of on the other end of land use you have things like um the amazon rainforest where it's undergoing slash and burns right it's uh extremely inefficient well, I, I, that's it's very efficient for a couple of years, and then it's unbelievably inefficient because what they're doing is they're chopping down all the trees and burning everything, which releases all of the carbon sequestered in the trees, right? And then they're doing extremely intensive farming because the ashes have so many nutrients in them, right? So you get a very good crop yield for a couple of years until you've Exactly. Yeah, you've bled the soil dry, so to speak, and then you need to chop down a bunch of new parts of the forest and burn it down and, and repeat and you just keep moving in. And mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's as far away from sustainable as you can be. Oh, my. Absolutely. Yeah. And this this might be a little skewed from what the actual percentage is, but it's pretty dang close. The What we use in terms of land use um, for agriculture so there's 30, I think it's 30 some percent of, of land is used for agriculture, but the vast majority of it is actually used to either uh, facilitate or support uh, livestock or the meat mm. or meat production. So, you know, a lot of people are calling for not veganism, but calling for people to eat less, less meat, yeah, less yeah. meat, which is, I, which, which is better technically from a health stand standpoint mm -hmm. and a sustainable standpoint have so, like a vegetarian day like one one day a week something like that yeah it just just uh having a conversation with a dietitian what mm -hmm. what do i need to eat like how much steak should i eat in a month it's surprisingly little it is it really I, is i remember uh, a dietitian friend telling me that the portion of meat that you're supposed to eat in a meal is the size of your palm and the thickness of your pinky. It's not yeah. a lot of meat. That's like no. a ham that's a hamburger patty, essentially. It has high impact. I mean, yeah. meat's fantastic. I, I, yeah. won't, I won't argue that. <laughs> I, the only thing yeah. I ever say is just like, if you want to have climate, like if you want to like have a climate impact, eat less meat. Yeah, but don't that's... don't not eat meat because we've evolved to need to eat some sort of animal product for our persona, our our microbiome, our, our just our nutrient levels. Like... There's also different types of meat you can eat too, right? So mm -hmm. chicken is better than pork, is better than sheep, is better than cow. Yep. Right. And so wild game is probably rivaled, if not better than that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's another good thing to bring up is that where what you're eating comes from yeah. is uh, another small thing, a small 100%. change you can make if, if you're going for that is, you know, buying locally, supporting local farmers, supporting organic farmers, th things like that. Right. hundred mm, yeah. percent. And sourcing will actually give you a better diet. Anyways, you'll, you'll be able to eat less and probably either save money or have the equivalent to it and feel better, which is, which is kind yeah. of interesting to think about, but it's, very true. And there's a lot of studies out there that show that. So I don't want to name statistics and be wrong, but definitely do <laughs> your own research. But yeah, so so land use is, is super important in terms of 
it's kind of hard to, to think about how we can change that moving forward. But I think putting a greater emphasis on, on public transportation, making it yep. more affordable to people is, is absolutely paramount. Yeah. Um, Another thing related to land use that we haven't right. really talked about, but I think that you would appreciate on a per personally is um, designing sustainable buildings. Absolutely. And so I actually started my academic career in a program called uh, architectural conservation and sustainability engineering. Nice. And the idea behind that was it was essentially structural engineering with the mm -hmm. idea of designing sustainable buildings. And one thing that I only did it for a year, so I didn't get very far in the program. But one thing that I, I quite remember as an example, when I talk about this is when you go into a room that has open windows, it's window facing, right? A, a lot of lectures, they have multiple light sources, right? Mm -hmm. And the light sources tend to run horizontally through the room. But what ends up happening is that if you turn off all the lights, the windows will illuminate half the room and then the other half of the room will be dark. So you have to turn on all of the lights just to light up half the room. So one way you could design a room that's like that is by having vertical lights instead of horizontal lights. So for the majority of the day, while light is coming, natural lights coming in through these windows, you can only have you know one third of the lights on to, and then use the natural light to light the rest of the room. Just very small changes like this, uh, you know, double pane glass, good insulation so that you don't have to like, you know, always be heating or always be cooling, uh, natural ventilation systems, things, you know, there's a lot of ways to design a building to be as ener energy efficient as possible without sacrificing comfort. Oh, absolutely. I think there's also a lot to say about city ordinances and how we set up suburbia in terms of, you know, like, I find probably one of the best situations is to have a building that's either very close or incorporates like a, like a, like a shop downstairs that creates communities, mm. reduces, uh, reduces the amount of travel you have to do having an inclusive building that incorporates everything that you said, but then also pushes you to go to like the park rather than just outside to your acre sized yard that like, every single person in suburbia has, <laughs> you know, it, it takes a look. Cause one thing that's very interesting and, and I've, I've, I've found that grass is actually horrible. Yeah. Like, and <laughs> it was, it was a, um, it was propaganda for uh, fertilizers companies. If, I don't know if you know that. No, so, but it makes sense. Yeah. So when, when my dad was growing up, grass was generally sold with clover mixed in so you would buy grass seed and it would have clover mixed into the grass seed right mm -hmm. and because clover is really good at trapping nitrogen and phosphorus and so clover is a, almost like a natural fertilizer for grass it keeps it it healthy nice. without any additives well when fertilizer companies came around they put out advertising campaigns that basically said if you have clover on your lawn you're poor you can't afford to keep green grass if you have clover and so they sold the they used that advertising campaign to you know make the middle class in north america afraid that they're being judged for their lawn if their lawn wasn't all grass and to keep that they ha sometimes had to use fertilizer Wow. How do you change that? That's something that has been just stuck 
into into society for decades. Wow. Yeah, not a lot of people know that. I mean, it's just not it's not the way to go. Uh, there, there's so many things that we do uh, in society that's been baked into us for for decades, not centuries. That we just we continue to do, but like, yeah, we don't know why there. we don't know why you're doing it anymore, right? Yeah, you have no yeah. idea. Wow, and that's why we need science communicators to communicate that in the lay term to like, hey, like, this really isn't natural. This mm-hmm. really isn't how it works, but this is what's been going on. Yeah. Here's some ways to get around that. I mean, that's just on the individual level. Probably one of the things I think that we could do that's best to help fight like like systemic change in terms of you know policy across the board in terms of energy, in terms of a lot of the, like public transportation, things that are going to benefit us as individuals in terms of our health is communicating with others, but also communicating with, with policy, policymakers mm-hmm. and leaders and um, invoking education. Once people were, were educated on the map, not educated, aware, I think aware is probably a better term. Once they're aware, they'll, they'll vote accordingly and that'll just be a trickle effect. In, in which we'll have people that are more aware of of what's going on in, in the governmental society to to vote on on things that that are bigger that are bigger picture than what you and I can really handle on a day to day time. A mass collection of people is way better than than singular impacts. I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I agree, and it's a little bit difficult to find out exactly where that education can go. And I think the answer is just wherever people have time, you know, to, to let it go, right? Like putting in another high school class for to mandate to students is probably, probably not the way to do it. Right. It's but it, it would be, it would be tough. And like, you know, what do you replace it with? Not enough hours in the day for these, these kids, but mm-hmm. you know, an elective maybe, or doing talks at libraries and at schools, um, things like this. I know, in my high school class, science classes and my upper year physics classes and stuff like this, my teacher would bring in people from outside the school to give talks on on other fields, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a good way to kind of introduce high schoolers to all sort, not only, you know, climate science and environmental science, but all sorts of different fields that they just don't really have the chance to experience in their undergrad because and this is a little bit off topic but we ask a lot of high school students uh, at least in canada and i'm willing to bet in the states too university or college is like a really big decision choosing a major is a really big decision on top of balancing you know everything else Mm -hmm. at the same time and a lot of the times you don't just go into you know a general science a general engineering it's like oh, go into geology or biology or bio, you know, uh, biochemistry. Yeah. Yeah. Physics, oceanography, atmospheric science, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. And and many of these, they might not have ever been exposed to before. Yeah. Yeah. They have no idea. They only know what, what they, uh, what they look up. By having trained scientists or trained science communicators being as available as they can and willing to both give public presentations even if it's just the small crowds you know uh yeah, a dozen people dozen people or so and then by making themselves available 
for like a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, by email or something like that, right? If a student wants to, is curious about this and they want to ask questions, you mm -hmm. know, I, uh, when I was an undergrad, I had emailed when I, I was, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Cause you know, I, I wasn't happy with my major. I was trying to figure out what to do. Just like going in and talking with profs from all sorts of different fields, one-on-one -on -one, and trying, you know, getting the sense mm -hmm. that that's like such a, it's such a valuable resource. Oh, I couldn't agree more. What are your final thoughts in terms of everything that we've talked about from modeling to what change can happen in terms of climate change and just everything that we've talked about? Yeah, my final thoughts are that climate science is a good microcosm of science as a whole. It forces inter interdisciplinary research and communication and it makes the field difficult, but also very rewarding. And I think that's something that I want people to, to take away from it. That as well as to get the ability to kind of think critically and about these topics. And if you see something that might seem a little sketchy, a little, you know, like propaganda-y almost, to open up Google Scholar to look up, you know, whatever the source was, mm -hmm. or to look up a paper on the topic. You don't need to be associated with the university. Sci-Hub's there for free. You can post in the the name of the the article you're look you're looking at and get the entire thing there. And just to to not be afraid to not trust something at first glance, I guess, because there's still a good amount of lies that are being circulated about the field. Yeah, and then ask questions. Yeah, and then in addition to that, I want to provide a serious but hopeful, I guess, look into the future, right? I'm not here to be doom and gloom and, like you said, to tell everyone to go vegan and to bicycle everywhere, right? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, you know, this is a serious topic and it does require some pretty big changes, you know, to our energy grid, to our transportation systems. And the longer we delay it, the more serious those changes, the more drastic those changes need to be in order to reach goals, right? So I'm hopeful about the outlook of the future. And it's definitely possible, I think, to still fix everything that we can and to avoid the worst of the worst. But it, we need to act ASAP, essentially. Dan, those are some powerful words, but good words. I couldn't agree more. So I wanted to just say thanks again for being on the show. This was awesome. I've learned a lot and I'm sure the I'm sure the people that are listening or watching is also going to learn a lot from from what you said and just what's been said across the entire show. So thanks a bunch, man. It was really great. Great, great getting to talk and uh, meet you. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sam. It was good meeting you as well. Awesome. Well, take care. You as well. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to Dan for sharing his knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make the show happen. This podcast was edited by myself, marketed by Courtney Page and Maria Pusateri, QC'd by Panyapit Erikset, and our episode art was manifested by Gabrielle Edmiston. 
After the episode, give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. And once again, we just kicked off our bi-weekly newsletter where we plan to preview the episode release of that week by giving out some facts from the recording as well as some things we missed during the discussion. And here's a cool tidbit. You'll be able to reply to our newsletter with a question for the upcoming show. Moving forward, we will take one or two questions from the audience and attempt to address them during the show. And lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben's Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.